Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to share some unique opportunities. And please feel free to share this with people who you know will also find it of interest. Today's guest is a good friend and somebody who I have a lot of respect for. His name is John Anderson. John is a charismatic evangelical Christian who was raised in Sweden, the United States, and Israel. He's not Jewish, but believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and is an articulate advocate for building bridges between Jews and Christians as a staunch representative of Christians who advocate strongly for Israel. As such, John travels extensively in many different circles among Christians and among Jews, John currently lives with his family in Jerusalem and studies at the Scandinavian School of Theology. Living in Jerusalem and knowing Bible as he does, I'll project and put words in his mouth that not a day goes by where he doesn't appreciate the particular significance of living in a united Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty. John is currently the Christian Relations Director at Cry for Zion, helping Christians understand their history with the Temple Mount and how it relates to biblical theology and the Jewish people. As an educator and creative director, he's passionate about making complex biblical topics and history accessible to regular people. Among his three books, he's the co-author of a Swedish study course on Jewish roots of the Christian faith. I haven't known John for that long by full disclosure, but he stands out as a voice of moral clarity and one who understands the intersection of the restoration of modern Israel and Jerusalem in particular with biblical history and prophecy. John, I'm really thrilled to welcome you here today as, a, as our guest on Inspiration from Zion. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, it's I great know. to you, see you, Jonathan. You, 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 help, you make me feel like I'm under a lot of pressure because you're so excited. And uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I won't disappoint, but hopefully I, I think that our listeners are in for a, a really good treat and a, and a great conversation. Um, I want to start off generally. You, you, uh, I think that there's probably nobody who has obviously the same background, but yours is unique. You, you, you're, you're from Scandinavia, Sweden, particularly you've been, you've lived all around the world and now you're in Jerusalem. Now I don't, I don't remember how long are you in Jerusalem? It's been, this is the second time that I'm living a few years. Um, now I'm married. I have children, five kids and live in Jerusalem. But the first time I moved to Jerusalem, well, I was here during, at first, 2003, during the Second Intifada, uh, some going to Hebrew school in Jerusalem. Uh, I then moved to an apartment as a bachelor in 2007 for a few years in Jerusalem. Um, and the last stint was really the beginning of 2017. So since 2017, the last stretch of years has been here in Jerusalem. 
why, why have you been here so much? Uh, you know, that's uh, you, 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 almost like an expat Israeli who comes back for first stint for a while, but you're here. You really got deep roots. Yeah. Um, so my family grew up as Christians who my parents were strong supporters of the Jewish people in Israel before I was born. So I know we have a little bit of common history when it comes to advocating for the refuseniks and the the Jewish community when the Soviet Union was still remaining. Right. And my parents would, would demonstrate for the freedom of the Jewish people outside the Soviet embassy in Sweden uh, back in the day. And so I, I grew up coming on, on tours here, trips here. And then my father um, started working for for Christian media being in the land. And so I partially grew up here, but it was a lot of international traveling uh, back and forth. So, so I had experience growing up here. I think even though I loved Israel very much growing up, I think I started to read the Bible probably about 2005 to study the Bible from a Jewish, more Jewish perspective. Okay. Uh, even though I'd been a, a wonderfully, very strong Christian, Christian family, the, the just purely Jewish perspective, the way the Jewish people read their own book was somewhat new to me ah. as and um it, what i discovered was it was really revolutionary i fell in love with the bible in a whole new way and i'd felt like there was a theological berlin wall between the old testament and the new testament that had always been there for me and it kind of fell and it strengthened my christian faith enormously to discover the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. So I, I, that's amazing. I don't think you and I have ever spoken about that. I want to unpack it mm. for a minute. Um, first of all, what about it? 2005, you're reading the Bible for specifically from a Jewish perspective. And mm. what did, what clicked? Why did you, what did you see that was different? Well, my father had started to, to, to study the weekly Torah portion for a year or two previous. And he invited me to do it with him. And when you start to methodically go through the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, that methodically, in order to really grapple with what it says, you start to, you know, a lot of times Christians might be Genesis is exciting and Exodus, you know, like Ten Commandments kind of movie, you know, it's exciting. By the time you get to Leviticus, a lot of people give up and go for some other part of the Bible. <laughs> but when you, when you read the, the Torah portion each week, to read through the five books in a year that, and with Jewish commentary, hearing Rashi's opinion and these classic Jewish commentators, you start wondering, well, Jesus is, a, you know, Jewish. And did he really come to do away with this promises of God when God comes and tells the Jewish people, you need to live this way and to keep this covenant and to keep my instructions forever. You know, this is an eternal instruction I'm giving you over and over again, you start to question whether uh, the New Testament or anything that's written by Jesus or his followers can really overthrow that. Wouldn't that change the nature of God? If God can, can change that radically much, then the Muslims might as well be right as well. They say, you know, the Jews failed. And so God went with the Christians, but now the Christians have failed too. And, and so now we have the final revelation and he's with us. And ultimately, you have to say, I don't believe that the God of the Bible, from his own revelation in the scriptures, can change that much. It's just not possible without 
making it a a theologically breakable structure that just collapses. That's and, amazing. Yeah, go ahead. And I, I think what the discovery was is as a passionate follower of Jesus, rereading the Gospels, rereading the New Testament, Paul, I find that just my lack of, of Jewish context had made me believe that they had done the same, but they hadn't. When I started to see that they were Jewish thinkers and Jewish writers who wrote about Jewish things, then you see that, ah, we've misunderstood this with Gentile eyes. And really, I don't have to compromise any on my faith to say God's word, his Torah is eternal still. They would fully agree with that. It's just that as Gentiles who started to develop a Christian theology after the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the Jewish people, a lot of Christian theology was developed of trying to understand the book of books without a geographic center and without even an ethnic center anymore. Right, and yeah. that a lot of, a lot of misunderstandings came from that. And that was a time for me for about several years to, to, to unpack Christian yeah. history. And it, it was very exciting. So now, now I study uh, for a bachelor of theology at a Christian um, seminary and really enjoy it. So but that, not, not, the, not the studying for the, the Bachelor of Theology, but how you look at scripture and understanding and, and articulating that, no, of course, no one did away with Old Testament, Hebrew scripture, whatever, whatever we want to call it. Um, yeah. that, that's still radical in a lot of Christian circles, isn't it? It is. Thank God it's changing a lot, uh, though. I think um, even Jewish people are more comfortable with saying that Jesus was a, was a good Jew who kept the Torah yeah. and, uh, you know, more than it used to be. And, and I think Christians at the same time also are gingerly starting to say, yeah, I think Jesus was a good Jew who kept the Torah. Right. <laughs> and and that, so that's softening up. But I think when you read their passages where they're maybe arguing about Levitical purity or impurity in the Gospels and discussing it uh, between Jewish scholars and Jesus, you know, says something and he says it's it, all this food that could be ritually impure is now clean. Yeah. Um, Gentiles are like, ah, oh, he must have meant that kosher is now all over. You know, here comes Jesus himself and said kosher is canceled. <laughs> and you, you think back, you know, no Jew in the discussion would have taken such a position seriously in the first century, you know, Second Temple era in Israel discussing these things on kind of a halachic uh, Jewish legal dispute and think that that's what Jesus was suggesting. It's just kind of from far removed Gentile eyes after the fact saying, oh, he must have meant that kosher was canceled. <laughs> Those are the kind of classic misunderstandings that we have. Right. Well, which, by the way, and uh, which is which is legitimate and yet hard at the same time, because you, if you don't have the, uh, I don't want it to come across in a judgmental way, if you don't have the depth of understanding what those first century Jewish writings were about, much less what came before, then then there's a lot a lot of uh, room for misinterpretation, and I'm I suspect that we're all guilty of interpreting things through how through our own respective prisms and how can we not 
I think so too. And obviously the responsibility for, for fixing Christian misunderstandings fall to me. And the Jewish people are working out their own restoration of coming back to Israel and, and revitalizing Jewish life in their own land after centuries of exile. And, um, we've, I feel like we've been a theological exile missing our, our theological center, geographic center. And it's, it's, that's what makes it so exciting to live now. Um, we forget that there was a time in my grandparents' uh, time when there was no state of Israel. Even Christians take this for granted now that the state of Israel is around. We don't realize what an absolute revolution um, the reemergence of Israel, the reestablishment of the Jewish state is biblically, theologically, um, it's been, you know, 70, more than 70 years. And it's, uh, it, people take it maybe a little bit too much for granted now, what a revolution it really is. Well, I want, I want to talk about that. But first, um, you, you, you talked about what a remarkable time we live in. But you have the privilege of living not just in a remarkable time, but a remarkable place. What, what's that like for you specifically as a Christian living, um, living among the Jewish people in the land of Israel? It's an incredible privilege to live here be, because I, I, not a lot of Christians do get to live here as, as long as I do. I've, the, the authorities have been good to, to me and to us as Christians who support Israel, but there's a lot of pro-Israel Christians who would love to live here all the time. But if we all did, you know, there's some six, 700 million evangelicals in the world. If we all flooded the country and stay here, (laughs) the Jewish state would be no longer. Um, So I feel incredibly privileged that I'm somebody who's able to live here for longer periods of time. So that's unique. And then to be in Jerusalem is, is incredibly special. I especially like it for the fact to be able to meet people like you and have conversations like this and to see what's happening, that the restoration of Zion is not complete and to be able to see it, it, it's not always, it's not all fun and games. I mean, there's, there is tension on the streets. There are battles being fought. And one of them that I work with cry for Zion with our organization a lot is the land has been restored. Jerusalem has been restored uh, on Jerusalem Day, <laughs> you know, in 1967 right. to the Jewish people. Few Christians are aware, however, that just a few days after Jerusalem Day in 1967, when the city was reunited and, uh, you know, it became the eternal capital. And I think even Moshe Dayan said, we have come, returned to our holiest of holy places, never to be divorced from them again. And even though he said that just a you know a few days later he unilaterally all by himself went and gave the keys to the temple mount to the holiest of holy right for the jewish people and all the biblical world he gave it back to the muslim religious custodians the muslim walk yeah gave the keys to the kingdom essentially back <laughs> as a gesture some sort of goodwill gesture even without the government really being involved, just all by himself, he did that. And that's been the quote unquote status quo of Jerusalem is that the heart of Jerusalem is, is ripped out of it. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a place of contention in Jerusalem. So in the midst of the joy and the euphoria of Jerusalem being restored, a lot of Christians thought, you know, this is the ultimate sign of the redemption 
1967, in a miraculous war of six days, God has given on a platter in a miraculous, in a biblical war almost, um, the, the whole package back to the Jewish people. And Christians were like, this is it. Now we just, you know, we keep supporting and praying, but ultimate redemption will come. A few people have realized that the heart of the whole thing is still missing. The Temple Mount is still not under full Jewish sovereignty, even though Israel has technical rights to it. They are not exercising their rights fully to have this sort of delicate status quo inherited from the British before the state. Well said. Yeah. Inherited from the British and uh, yeah. And still it's probably for another conversation, but I always find it fascinating that in our um, peace treaty with Jordan in 1994, we acknowledged their special role. And what's funny is there are a lot of geopolitical reasons. I would love to have a conversation with Moshe Dayan today and and say, you know, what do do you think you made a mistake? Uh, be, because I understand the 1960s notion that it was really just a land dispute and we beat them in 1948 and we beat them in 1956 and now we beat them in 1967. And naturally with this sweeping win, they're just, the Arabs are just going to come to the table and say, yeah, you're right. We can't beat you. Let's coexist. Just give us the land back. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do like we, we did as children playing games and sport, do a, do a do over rather than rather than moving forward. And um, I, I, I just, I, I have to hope that Amosha Dayan today, a Golda Meir today, would look at the situation and say, no, knowing what we now know in 2022, we would probably have acted somewhat differently and with more authority in 1967. A lot of my Jewish friends have said, you know, Israel was not ready for it in 1967 and Moshe Dan well remembered uh, the days of 1948 and and previous when, when the Temple Mount was used as a slander and a cause to massacre the Jewish community. Uh, You know, they remembered those days and the religious Jewish community didn't seem well, you know, with, with some exceptions, notably Rabbi Goran, the head, the chief rabbi of the, of the military was was very well aware of the situation, but others, you know, it was a new thing, like seemingly for the Jewish community to have access to the Temple Mount itself. Yeah. But now, 50-something years later, on Jerusalem Day, you can tell things are moving forward, both both in a in a positive sense of, of Israel kind of coming back to herself is the sense that I get. Of, of, of its own identity of, of who we are as a people is what I feel like the Jewish people are saying at the same time, as you can see this imperfect situation from 1967, yeah. not dealing with it just festers more and more each year. I remember uh, Jerusalem day a year ago when really for the first time in many years that I could remember the air raid siren sounded off on Jerusalem day. And I was with my kids, wife and kids in the park uh, with tons of families playing on the playground after the flag march and, and rockets from Gaza were coming. Yep. You know, the air raid siren sounded at the Western wall and um, we ran for a bomb shelter. I mean, I've lived in the Negev close to Gaza and I've been used to that, but in Jerusalem, 
to have a bunch of Jewish families with kids just, you know, booking it for bomb shelters of which they were not, you know, dusty and rusty and barely aware of where they were. Right. Was it was wild a year ago. Yeah. Very haunting. I want to come back to that. But something you mentioned earlier about the history of using for people who don't necessarily know the history, using the Temple Mount as a way to uh, to attack Jews or Jewish legitimacy. Um, what you're referring to, what happened a year ago, it was just a continuation of that. But it was it was Islamic authorities going back 100 years or more who would always threaten, who not threaten, who would always incite using the fact that the Jews were coming to uh, destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque, to rebuild the temple. Now, people have to remember the Al-Aqsa Mosque is not the one that people, that's their third holiest uh, mosque. Mm. And that's for a separate conversation. But the Golden Dome, the Dome of the Rock, is the one that people picture with as, as sort of the a, a centerpiece of Israel, at, specifically at the center of the Temple Mount. Um, but there's been there's been allegations for a century or more that we're coming to destroy this, and they've applied the the, 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 the I'm saying in quotes the sanctity mm. of Al Aqsa to the entire Temple Mount. So. Uh, it's not just that they have a mosque there that's important outside of Mecca and Medina. And what happened exactly a year ago on Jerusalem Day, which we're, which we're celebrating next week, was that Hamas, with the same threats, the, the same uh, allegations that the Jews were coming to defile Al-Aqsa, and we, Hamas, in Gaza are going to now protect, are going to use um, I, I seem to, I remember very vividly, we were at a family wedding that mm. day and the Hamas threatened at six o'clock if the Jews didn't get down from the Temple Mount or, 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 or the march was, I don't remember precisely what the threat was, that they were going to fire rockets. And I think if I remember correctly, at 6.03, we were, you know, the location in Gush Etzion and uh, uh, there's a, there's a, um, Near, near my house, just south and east of Jerusalem, we were in the middle of our afternoon prayer and we heard three explosions. And then I looked to the north, to my left, and I saw the plume of smoke and I have a picture of it, not more than several miles away. And we knew that that actually at that time, my son had just gotten out of the army for the day for this family wedding. And by the time the ceremony was over, he was told he needed to go back immediately. And my son-in-law was one of the first uh, 5,000 reservists to be called up in what became an 11 day i i don't like to call it a war mm. because i think we're still fighting the same war from 1948 uh but but a, a a battle and um and it's the same threat and 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 maybe jumping ahead you know what before we jump ahead i want to just want to take a break for a moment for 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 an announcement and then i want to come back and talk with you about where we are today in may of 2022. In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. 
Okay, so John, I guess it's it's inevitable and unavoidable that we're going to get into conversations that overlap biblical, modern, and and and, and current events. We're speaking. It's now May of 2022. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated um, Yom Hatzma'ot, Israel's Independence Day, uh, which corresponds with the uh, secular day on which Israel the, uh, on which Israel declared independence in 1948. That was a week and a half ago on May 14th, which our neighbors and other enemies call the Nakba, the catastrophe of the of the establishment of the state of Israel. And next week we celebrate Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day, the day on the biblical calendar that corresponds with the secular day in 1967 on which. Jerusalem was reunified and 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 uh Israel uh, occupied for occupied that's a word I don't like um Israel controlled for a very brief time unilaterally the temple mount hoisting an Israeli flag on top of the the golden dome and and as you said before kind of retrenched from that um but because you mentioned it earlier it was exactly a year ago that this the, uh, one of our most recent conflicts began. And we're, I think that we're in a period of, in fact, greater incitement. We, we're, we're, we're still in a, I, I say in quotes, wave of terror, more terror attacks taking place. Uh, as, as of the time we're speaking now, about 20 Israelis have been killed in the last several weeks. And I'm, and I don't mean to be a prophet of doom, but I'm kind of nervous about what's going to happen next week. What are your thoughts? I think you're right that we are in a particular, I want to say cultural moment that's similar to last year, Jerusalem Day. Uh, last year, this, this season, there's a new shift that Israel's gone into and it's just intensified and it's very reminiscent of last year. And we pray for <laughs> the peace of Jerusalem and that God, the guardian of Israel, would watch over the land because it's uh, we're entering this season with trepidation as well as with joy for for the miracles that have happened. If I I'm reminded to kind of back up to both the spiritual and physical battle in big picture between, you know, the Israel Muslim or Palestinian conflict and then to think about what happened last year. So for for me as a, a Christian, I think for many Jewish people as well, um, to quote a great Israel film, I Am Israel, Israel is the best proof that for God in the world and that he's acting in our world today. That's that's really sums it up. And, you know, the, the, the legend goes that Kaiser Wilhelm asked his aide, you know, give me a proof for the existence of God, but make it quick, like stand on one leg and tell me because uh, I got to go. <laughs> and he's, all he said was, the Jews, your majesty. And that was even before the restoration of the state. Yeah. It's just, it should not be, but it is, that the Jewish people are alive and well and still around. Um, another rabbi friend of mine, he said, you know, if, if it, it is unique in history that a dispersed people where empires come and they defeat a region and they throw them out, and then put another population in, in order to not have uprisings for, for such a people to survive is unique in history. Uh, but if it was just that fact that like, Oh, what a, what a unique anomaly, you know, it's the exception that confirms the rule. 
but then to have it foretold for 3,500 oh, years, well ever since the time of Moses, that he promised that this would happen to the Jewish people and that God himself would restore them. And the rest of the prophets are really just kind of expounding on this covenant. Um, that makes it incredible yeah. that the Jewish people are back and restored. Now, my heart breaks for the Arab Palestinians just caught on the other side in this culture of, of lies and death and destruction. And it, it's so sad for me, for their case, because anybody that's caught up in an in a evil cause and ideology just end up being chewed up and spit out by the process and ruined by it itself for their own sakes. But for them, it's, and for people, especially Christian anti-Zionists, the Bible, it, well, I should say, the state of Israel is illegitimate. It's not a fulfillment of prophecy. You know, 14th of May, 1948 is a catastrophe, a Nakba. It's not a miracle. Um, the Holocaust is resented. It's not remembered. The land is Palestine. It's not Israel. Um, and for Christians of this persuasion, the church is the new Israel. The old Israel is done with. The Bible is a Christian book, not a Jewish book. Um, Jesus is a Palestinian, not a Jew. And biblical prophecy is just kind of a pick and choose moral manifesto. It's, it's not really to be taken rationally or literally. And out of this kind of movement of both anti-Zionist forces among Islam or among Christianity, it's created this fake mirror of the Jewish miracle story of Zionism. So they have, and I know this is totally politically incorrect to say, but they've invented their own people and their own diaspora. So, you know, in today's day and age with woke politics being as they are, if you deny someone's self-identity, it's, it's almost an aggression akin to murder. But True. If, if you're just going to say the facts, you can quote from 1977, one of Fatah or Pilo's leaders, he said in an interview, the Palestinian people does not exist. Right. The creation, the creation of a Palestinian state is only a means for continuing our struggle against the state of Israel for our Arab unity. In reality today, there's no difference between Jordanians, Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese. Only for political and tactical reasons do we speak today about the existence of a Palestinian people since Arab national interests demand that we posit the existence of a distinct Palestinian people to oppose Zionism for tactical reasons. Jordan, which is a sovereign state with defined borders, cannot raise claims to Haifa and Jaffa, while as a, quote, Palestinian, I can undoubtedly demand Haifa, Jaffa, Beersheba, and Jerusalem. Well said. So this is, you know, from the horse's mouth, from Palestinian cause leaders in the 70s saying this but today it's a fact that you may not it's 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 a sacred thing you may not deny and then in a mirror image of the jewish story there's now a palestinian diaspora an exile from 1948 spread out among the surrounding arab countries uh, and in europe and in america now in, in sweden my home native land there are there's an exception made for this Palestinian refugee people. All of the refugees after World War II and that era were resettled millions upon millions upon millions. 
Correct. But the United Nations created a special, unique category for Palestinian refugees to where their children, their children, and their children's children, and so on, remain this exile diaspora community. Correct. It's the only it's the only people in the world that has refugee status that's uh, inherited. Exactly. And it kind of becomes this fake mirror Zionist story. And we need the we need the right of return to flood this nation back with the great descendants of our Palestinian people back to Palestine. Um, And that's that's the kind of anti narrative that the other side is playing. Right. And it kind of makes me think that it's the negative proof of all of God in the world. Also, a friend of mine recently said that there's, there's no people in the world that could be this unlucky as the Jewish people, <laughs> you know, just look around the land, all the most holiest places, the temple Mount, Joseph's tomb, the tomb of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rebecca and Leah in Hebron, Rachel's tomb, and Bethlehem, the most sacred places to the Jewish people are the most contentious that the Jewish people just must not have access to for some reason. And that, that battle is still playing out today. So a year ago, we had um, Jerusalem Day, March, you know, with the flags, proudly waving through the streets. And I saw the march from a picture from the march, I think a year or two after 1967 that went with tanks and a ah, victory parade right. Uh, right past Damascus gate today, Correct. Correct. you know, and nobody dared lift a hand, Correct. but tensions have fomented. I think I, I, there were a lot of things that I wish Israel would do different, you know, or would it would assert itself more. And a lot of Israeli friends of mine think so too, that it's, if you don't do something, just hoping it will go away will not work. You know, it gets, the tensions get worse. And I think for uh, Arab Palestinians and for Muslims in general, they're very clear about what the conflict is about. Westerners are very tentative to say that this is a spiritual or religious conflict or that it has anything to do with the Temple Mount. This is what we want to avoid saying. Uh, is. Right. For them, this is the absolute most obvious thing. It's all about Al-Aqsa. Correct. It's all about um, the fact that (laughs) that's what's so funny. We were talking or sad. We were talking about uh, that. There's been lies told about Al-Aqsa for over a hundred for, for like a hundred years. Hajamin al-Husseini was uh, from what I've read, doctoring pictures of Al-Aqsa back in the thirties. In the 30s, he was cutting and pasting pictures of Jewish people throwing grenades up on the Temple Mount. No kidding. And, and fomenting violence that, that Israel's going to reclaim the Temple Mount. Well, what's interesting, by the way, to, uh, to interrupt, Hajamin al-Husseini, who was the head of the Arab, the, the, the Arab we need to call it, because then they weren't even called Palestinians, um, hmm. but the Arab Islamic Authority in Jerusalem at the time um, published... A uh, a guide to the Temple Mount, 1924, I think, was the was the year. I have a copy. If anyone wants to to ask me, uh, I'll be glad to uh, send a copy of a PDF of it. And in it, 
it actually articulates the fact that the Temple Mount is the Temple Mount, and it sits on the site of the Temple of Solomon, and that was republished, as if I remember the, the, the history correctly, in 1950, but by 1954, they had already taken out their big eraser, and now it was no longer convenient in their narrative, and I like what you said about the narrative. You see, I, I don't you think you and I ever had this conversation specifically. I recognize that we live among people who, for whatever their for whatever reason, that is their identity now. But it is a fake identity. It's an identity that was made up as a foil to Israel declaring independence, and and only um, only a, a decade and a half or two decades afterward. When I go around and speak in churches or at Christian conferences, I introduce myself as the father of an, as the son of an original Palestinian, because my father was born in Haifa in 1937 at the time when the only people in the world were refer, who were referred to as Palestinians were the Jewish people in Palestine. And that doesn't change the reality today, but I'm very particular about facts and integrity. And, yeah. and, 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 and I just want to maybe digress or, 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 or just move the conversation. I don't know, not deliberately in a different way, but you're talking about it as an Islamic, you know, in the 1960s, it was legitimate to have said, Oh, okay. It's just a national thing. And they're going to come to terms with us because, you know, they can't keep losing wars. It's, it's clearly an Islamic conflict. And one of my recent articles earlier this month was, I think, called, um, the, the 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 cornerstone of Islamic replacement theology, and you mentioned it. The, the, I think the Golden Dome is also known as the Dome of the Rock. Inside it is a huge rock. It's the rock upon which we believe you uh, you Christians and us as Jews that Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, and that's spelled out in Genesis twenty two. But where but that's where Islam begins to divert from anything that's biblical because Muslims celebrate the, the um, uh, sacrifice of Ishmael. And mm-hmm. from that point, if you're changing, I mean, really, truly replacement theology, if you're replacing everything from that point forward, then there's nothing biblical to what they do. Be a monotheist, theoistic religion, great. Jerusalem is important to you, great. Have a mosque there, great. But you can't erase the facts of history. It is a battle for the truth. And and to make it a a battle between a Jewish national identity and a Palestinian national identity is itself a fake construct. It is, in truth, a larger, not even just Arab, but even Muslim conflict allied with leftist powers um, on the international socialist left that is largely at war with the Jewish state today. And yeah, you can talk about, right. People talk about the three Abrahamic faiths. Sure. It's Abrahamic, but you and I share, you know, scriptures that we have in common that we can agree upon. I can't do that with the Quran. And you're like, well, it's based off the Bible. Sure. But you trace, you change the most uh, important fact. So yeah, Abraham goes to almost sacrifice his son, but you change the son. The, The entire inheritance has changed. Now it's Ishmael. Right. It's the binding of Ishmael is not the binding of Isaac. So it's all a battle for the truth. And the facts become very important. 
hundred percent. By the way, I want to interject because because a lot of Jews don't understand completely and are uncomfortable with what I do and the conversations that we have and relationships and and and, Christ, and historic Christianity and therefore modern Christianity. But when I'm in a church and I'm hearing a pastor preaching from the New Testament, more often than not, I'm hearing Jewish texts. I'm hearing Jewish content. So even if I'm even if we diverge theologically at a certain point. It's all, it all derives from, from uh, what was up until that point, first century Judaism, biblical Judaism. And, and you and I can't sit and read the Quran together, you and I, or with a, a, a Muslim friend in, in, in respect. Mm. You're, we're not going to, you know, be, be gross about it by any stretch. I have friends who are Muslims, but we can't read into it. We can't share that that same experience we share some things but it not at all as much as you and i may share um even if we wanted to it, it just can't the the facts diverge too soon too hard too fast too much and that's what i think is kind of a little wild about israel finding its identity in this time through this restoration process of decades is you know, Hajjamin al Husseini in the 30s and 40s was making up this lie that Israel was just wanting to destroy the Al Aqsa Mosque and, and the Dome of the Rock and, and printing fake pictures about it and inciting to big, you know, massacres in Hebron and places about Correct. for this case, which was a lie because the Jewish people were not threatening the Al Aqsa. However, Islam rightly senses that. The Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is their symbol that they have conquered Christianity and they have conquered Judaism. And all of a sudden, the fact that the Jewish people return as a living, breathing, thriving uh, entity yeah. in this land, they sense correctly that this is a big threat theologically to Islam. And they are right that the Jewish dream and aspirations of all the ages is to restore uh, not just Jerusalem, but even Zion in all the prayers to become, you know, a house of prayer for all nations to restore the house of God on the Temple Mount, not in a in a unjust way, but that that is ultimately someday the God given dream. They, so they're rightly right. They lie that the Jewish people are threatening the Al-Aqsa, but they are correct in the fact that their system of narrative is under threat. Well, because it's exclusive and we have one that's more inclusive. <laughs> that's true. It's true. And, and they're always uh, in that vein. It's always about that our revelation is the final revelation because they realize their system is based on. So the Jews corrupted it and they messed up and it's over. The Christians, God went to the Christians, but they corrupted it and it messed up over. So, but you know, now God has come to us. And in order for this system not to repeat, we have to keep emphasizing ours is the final revelation. Right, right. <laughs> God can't do this again. We're the final ones. Correct. Correct. And but the answer if, to but the, God can, but if God can, the, and the point is, and you alluded to it, and everyone says it, but if God can um, uh, break a covenant with the Jewish people or with Christians, uh, th then you can call it final as much as you want. But th th then, then He's not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then He's not the God of the Bible, and and therefore. Therefore, any words that they that they attribute to their God are 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 false from a false God. 
Agreed. My perspective also. And even my grandfather uh, recognized that. And he said, Islam has always been uh, my grandfather. I'm shocked he said this. He's a pastor. Um, I didn't even know he was that pro-Israel, but or the Jewish people. He said, uh, Islam has always been a judgment on a backslidden anti-Semitic Christianity. Wow. Because the fact that we say, oh, God can break his promises with the Jews and give them to us. Yeah. Just let Islam come along and say, oh, really? Well, why, why can't he break them to you and give it to us? And we're right. the final. <laughs> well, you, you and I, you and I can come up with our own religion and, and, and say that, you know, we're twin prophets and uh, God revealed himself <laughs> to us. And this is really, you know, this is really the last revelation. And, and Yeah, the answer to that to me is to say, no, God can never change. He can't break his promises Good. and his covenants Excellent. and is faithful to Israel. Excellent. Now. All of that said, a year ago was a surreal time in Jerusalem. The flag march with running to bomb shelters at the Western Wall um, with during uh, that time, the, the, the Muslims riding on the Temple Mount, accidentally setting one of their own trees on fire on the Temple Mount. You have images of, of the Jewish people dancing in celebration at the Western Wall and above them the the uh the temple mount was on fire uh, not because israel had done something but because they were shooting uh, fireworks at the israeli police or, or trying to get you know access to the western wall close enough they could throw rocks yeah. at jewish worshipers and so you have these dramatic images and then by the time you got to shavuot to pentecost a piece of weeks um, shortly thereafter which we're coming to yeah. i think just about a week after jerusalem day Correct. Um, there was a lot. Of, corona was going on, so it was it was it was hard to go to the uh, to visit synagogues and listen to the classes um, that usually go on all night in Jerusalem among Jewish communities. So, me and a friend, we walked towards the Western Wall because it's open; it's in the fresh air. It was one of the most surreal nights of my entire life, as I got on the walls of um, of the old city. I'm looking out not far from the Western Wall and the Temple Mount, and looking out over the neighborhoods of the city of David and Silouan. And all of it was in an uproar. Wow. The Arabs were in the streets yelling and chanting jihad, clashing with anyone they could find, aiming heaviest fireworks they could get their hands on, aiming them at any house that was Jewish, yeah. and shooting the rockets and uh, at Jewish homes and the, I could see the Mount of Olives being lit up by explosions for whatever explosives they could get their hands on. And you could hear the whole Valley screaming for Jewish blood. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. That. I didn't know that. I felt like I was in a surreal Kristallnacht of some kind. And it and ignited uh, a week and a half of, violence going on in other Israeli mixed Israeli cities where Jews were lynched and synagogues torched and homes and businesses. And uh, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a disastrous time. Um, I want to, I want to take a break for just a, a, another moment for, for another quick announcement uh, and then come back. You, you used a phrase earlier, um, which, which most Jews and Christians should know about the Temple Mount being a house of prayer for all nations. And I want to talk to you what that, about what that means. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment 
to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Okay, so John, this is a really, we're, I, we're all over the place in a really great way and I'm loving it, but we we'll keep coming back to the core, which is really the foundation. I alluded to it in my article, the cornerstone for Islamic replacement theology. But for you and I, Jews and Christians, Jerusalem is the center. Uh, before we even talk about what I mentioned before before the break, um, the, uh, building a house, creating a house of prayer for all nations, talk about your own experiences being on the Temple Mount. You, you've gone up there. How often? What's that like? Have you gone into any of the mosques? So... I went up there as a kid coming with Christian tours when I was a child. And I remember at that time before the second intifada, there was no problem going into the golden dome of the rock. Um, and I remember going in there as a kid, very kind of, you know, ignorant. I was a tourist essentially and looking around and just remembering the experience. Maybe someday I'd learn the significance. And then years later, after reading the Bible from a Jewish perspective, learning a lot more, being older, and realizing that this mountain, this holy place, is still holy today. Hmm. If me as a Christian, replacement theology would say no. But if I reject replacement theology, I believe the land of Israel is still holy and special to God. Jerusalem is still holy and special to God. Even more so, the Temple Mount which is the God's holy mountain in the scriptures, Mount Moriah or Mount Zion. Um, that's biblical Zion. And it's, if Jerusalem's still special to me and to God, then Zion should still be. And Jesus makes this comment in the gospels. He says that one day, and he's alluding to the Romans, the Roman destruction, um, the Gentiles will come and they, they'll trample this place underfoot until the time of the nations is over. Wow. And I realized as I was up there um, in as an adult that I don't want to be one of those people that Jesus was talking about that are Gentiles that are trampling the holy courts of the Lord. I want to respect it the way the Jewish people respect it as still a holy site. And there are certain areas you don't walk on. There are certain areas that Jesus wouldn't have gone into as, point. as Excellent you know point. Wow. right he, he you know as a as from the tribe of judah he wow. wouldn't have gone where where the levites or the or the priests could could go in their courts so and then we have i learned as i studied later 
the Apostle Paul takes uh, his final visit to Jerusalem, he, he uh, gets asked, do you believe that the Torah is over and that Jews should no longer circumcise their children? Is this what you're teaching Jewish people among the nations? We know you're telling Gentiles they don't have to circumcise and convert and become Jews. But are you telling Jewish people this too? That's the rumor about you. Yeah. And so they tell him, is that true? And no, it's not. So to prove that, we want you to go to the temple and, and finish a Nazarite vow. And we have some other friends. This is a really expensive vow to finish. Um, we want you to, to, to pay for them. And this is your ultimate proof. Go and participate in the temple worship as you normally do and pay for others as well for their sacrifices. And it will prove to everyone that you live according to the Torah and you still believe in it. And he goes there, but he takes some Gentile friends with him, some Greeks. And he doesn't take them beyond the court of the nations. Oh, wow. He, Paul himself did not take. However, some, some of his adversaries were at the temple and they said, this is the guy who loves all of the Gentile guys. I bet you he's taken his Gentile friends into the temple. And they start a riot and they have him arrested. But, the, but those are false accusations. Paul was trying to prove that he still lived according to the Torah. And he hadn't taken his Christian Greek friends into the holy areas of the temple. So learning this stuff, I'm like, I want to respect this as a follower of Jesus. If I was with my buddy Paul up there, he wouldn't take me beyond certain points. Mm. And he himself would not go beyond certain points to the Levitical courts. So I would then take um, groups up to the Temple Mount, Christian groups, show them around and show them this is where, where Jesus would have come. Um, you know, not to mention all the biblical heroes like David and Solomon and practically, you know, Abraham, anyone ever in the Bible almost has been specifically to the Temple Mount. But then as Christian, we've got Jesus is here all the time. Paul, just over there, I can point to the chamber of the Nazarites where he would have cut his hair to finish his vow. Um, this is where Jesus' own brother, according to church history, was later uh, killed. He died here. Um, this is where, where his, Jesus' mother, Miriam or Mary, would have stood watching her pigeons be brought at the altar. We know exactly where that was. It's incredibly significant for Christians as well as Jews. And, and all the heroes that we look at being on the Temple Mount, they're all, they're all Jewish people, except for the one Greek <laughs> that I right. mentioned, so Paul's buddy. When I think of the Temple and, hmm. pray, and pray for its restoration, I think of it as the, as the center of, of Jewish life. You know, that was ripped away from us almost for the second time, almost 2000 years ago. And, and I even though I know it, I don't typically think of it as a house of prayer for all nations, because, you know, all the, the, and, and maybe the, the, the example that you use is that there were places that Gentiles could go. There are places that the uh, all, all the tribes except the Levites could, uh, could could go and 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 then the high priest um but in having dialogue in 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 underscoring the significance as you just did uh, hmm. spe- uh um, listing quite appropriately why the temple mount is significant what does it mean to you uh, as uh, that that the, the temple mount is or should be a house of prayer for all nations <clears throat> 
for me, it's, it's Jesus' most famous quote up there that he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. And he says in his great <laughs> zeal and passion for the place, this, you know, it's written, this should be a house of prayer for all nations. That prophecy is the great hope of all mankind, biblically. Even the United Nations will put that on a plaque outside of the UN headquarters in New York. And oh, it wow. lists yeah. and it says, you know, they'll beat their swords into plowshares and won't learn war anymore. But that's a misappropriation because that promise is given to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's not not given to New York or to London or Stockholm or Moscow. It's given to Jerusalem that this will be the place that ultimately mankind will serve the one God at the place where Jerusalem becomes a, and the Temple Mount becomes a house of prayer for all nations. And I'm so touched by the fact that all the Jewish advocacy groups for Zion that I know um, have that passage, a house of prayer for all ma- nations, basically as their motto. I haven't encountered one group that doesn't have that as their motto, even though they're maybe exclusively Jewish organizations. Right. And people that I've met, Jewish friends that I've met, uh, Orthodox rabbis, have said, this has challenged me because I normally don't think about it that way, but there this is, go. in fact, the destiny of this place. Right. And so I, all of a sudden I have to think more about the nations coming here, streaming up like, like rivers, but uphill to yep. the house of God. <laughs> That's, it's, it's amazing to me the hope and the destiny that this place holds biblically. And I think everybody knows it. Even, even the UN headquarters <laughs> knows it and wants to appropriate it for itself. But that is the destiny of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That's great. What? So I, I'm going to put you on the spot, but because, because it's pro- probably a, a, a challenging question. What's the most significant thing? We celebrate the restoration of Jerusalem next week. What's the most significant thing to you about that? Not the, not the celebration, the restoration, the reunification. To me, it is that God keeps his promises in history, and he's moving in history in our world today. Promises that are thousands of years old. And to me as a Christian, it strengthens my Christian faith that this is what Jesus even said, that though the Jewish people be exiled from here and there will be a time when the nations are dominant, there will be a time when that ends and the Jewish people will be back in Jerusalem. So for me, it fulfills the promise of of both God in the Hebrew Bible and the promise of Jesus himself, that this is what would happen and it's happened. And also I keep thinking of, even though the, the history and the current politics are very messy. And my own life is messy. It's not perfect. But what God does, he does right. Um, he, even in the midst of people's failings, and the Six-Day War was a miraculous war, but it was also sad. A lot of people died. A lot of people are part of this uh, conflict and struggle. But in the midst of that, I believe that God has acted justly in history to restore the Jewish people to Jerusalem. Justly and, and, and is faithful. Yes. 
both the faithfulness, but also that he, d- he doesn't just do this. Like I'm going to kick these other people out, put these other people uh, in that he's an, that he's an immoral God that even in the midst of our mess and imperfect humanity, he does this in the most historically just way we can, we can see as we read human history. Mm. Um, and people try to deny that and fight against it tooth and nail. And really, I think that's a fight against God, ultimately, not against the Jewish people. Well, then that leads me to maybe one of the last two mm. or so questions that I wanted to ask you. I, I probably should have asked this earlier, because by now there have certainly been some people who have listened, who sit, who, who, who hear a very um, intelligent, well-spoken, um, passionate advocate for Israel, for Jerusalem, for Zion, the Temple Mount, but who are uncomfortable for any number of ways with with uh, um, some of the theological foundations for that and unfortunately might not be listening still. But to someone who's still listening, hopefully they, hopefully many are, and hopefully this will go around and people will be provoked. What, what do you want to say to to help them understand the significance? I think that as a Christian in, in traditional theology that I grew up with, there were certain things that were uncomfortable that God could love a specific ethnic people in a special way. Um, isn't that so exclusive? Or um, could could God still see um, the temple worship as, as um, still valid for our world today or in the future? Wouldn't that be somehow a blasphemy against the cross and against the death of Jesus. Yeah. There's many questions that feel nervous and you kind of wonder if I were to entertain thoughts like that, what if that undermines my faith as somebody who's gone through years of grappling with that? I haven't needed to become a liberal theologian who compromises or explain things away. I've been able to become a very passionate lover of God and my faith and the Bible and the New Testament, that this is a very Jewish document and it stands up to great scrutiny that you don't, that if you're willing to entertain that God's promises to the Jewish people in the Torah and to the nations in the Torah and in the, in the old Testament, as it's unfortunately been termed, um, that really none of it's done away with none of it's done away with. And that is not in conflict at all with Jesus or with the New Testament. It Great. just isn't. Great. That's what I would comfort people with. And I would challenge people to, to read the New Testament as a Jewish book, not as a Gentile book, Great. but that a book that loves from, from beginning all the way from Genesis that loves all of humanity. And it, I think it stands up to the test. Well, that's amazing, and and actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, again put words in your mouth as I did at the outset, and and say that if people, I, I love when people get feedback, uh, and specifically uh, eager for feedback on this, but that's a great uh, almost debate challenge, and not as a debate, but I would love to have it as a dialogue, and if people are interested, then we'll take this podcast, which is a a, a, a dialogue between the two of us that people are um, listening to and open it up to a webinar that can be interactive um, about, about that and other, and other topics if, if there's some interest. So last thing, you know, you just said 
um, looking at the New Testament as a Jewish document. We, we we're speaking about the Temple Mount as, and and there are still Jews who are uncomfortable with it um, from from our worldview, from our sociology. And you know this as well as anyone. Um, the the work that I do building bridges gets uh, no shortage of pushback. Um, sometimes not even pleasant. Uh, there, there's one thing to be uncomfortable and another thing to be hostile. So there, uh, I've been so pleased that there are a number of Jews who listen to this, even though it's a, a, a con- conversations through inspiration from Zion that's really meant to engage Christians. But Jews are going to have a discomfort with some of the things that you said. What do you want to say to Jewish people who are still listening now and who, who, who are feeling threatened and are who are reading into what you say, ah, there he goes. And this just proves what he said there proves X and what he said here proves Y. What do you want to say to, to, to us? I want to say that Chris, the Christian world, the evangelical Christian Protestant world, especially is very large and they love the Bible. And to us, if you give a good biblical argument, the best argument wins. That's been always been our philosophy. So we're not always, we're not supposed to be bound by a tradition of like, this is what Christianity has always said. So if people come with a, with a better argument, we're like, great. This, I'm so happy we understand this book better now. And that's why we so appreciate being able to be in conversation with Jewish people because, um, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, or Shaul as his Hebrew name is, wrote that the biggest uh, privilege that the Jewish people have is that they are entrusted with the very words of God. Mm. Th- that that they still are. So even if, if um, for us, we have a mandate to listen to Jewish people and respect Jewish people, as the ones who are the custodians of the Holy Scriptures, regardless of whether we disagree about Jesus or not. And a lot of us are just grateful for that. There are people who who want to missionize and convert Jews to Christianity and and all of that. And I understand those fears. Um, But there are other attitudes among the Christian community as well of just gratitude for what God has done through the Jewish people for the world and for us in particular great. and for giving us the book of all books yeah. uh, that, that tells us who, who God is and that he loves us. And he did that through the Jewish people, which we just want to, for me, I think we need to, most of the challenges I feel are towards Christians. So it's hard for me to speak towards a Jewish uh, community, but for us, we're trying to accept the challenge of, seeing how much God loves the world and still respect the fact that he has chosen the Jewish people to show that. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, John, John Anderson, uh, a a, a delightful, engaging conversation um, as I expected. I hope I kept up with your expectations. Absolutely. Um, But this was great. And we, and and we will continue. Um, People can reach out to John Anderson, Anderson, um, the Christian relation director Cry for Zion. What's the website, John? It's cryforzion.com. And we're on Facebook and YouTube as well. Um, Having uh, spicy theological conversations sometimes. So if you're curious, you're welcome. They're respectful, but they're exciting. 
So cryforzion.com. Good. Terrific. John, thank you. It's been a delight. Let me, um, let me just wrap up for everyone who is continuing to listen. Uh, I, I say it kind of tongue in cheek, but if you're listening for this long, you deserve a reward. And this year we started a great, great project. Um, every month offering a special gift. I call it from Jonathan's bookshelf, a special book that's relevant to uh, something in the conversation. And this month in May, specifically, we're offering a volume that's going to be re- that's re- really eye-opening as far as um, uh, why the, the significance of the dates that we're celebrating in Jewish history. All we ask is that people go to Inspiration from Zion social media, like and follow us, and then comment and share this link to this program. And when you do it, we're going to pick one winner at random. And as we've done every month, send a, send a gift directly to you. Um, we're really grateful to our sponsors. This is, this, this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. Always tell people if you're in the area and, uh, want to go say hi and thank them for helping make this conversation and programs like this possible. Please do so. And thanks to the Coin family for their mean, meaningful sponsorship. Uh, inspiration from Zion and all of the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. This episode, because we're celebrating Jerusalem Day next week, is uh, sponsored by someone who chose to be anonymous, but in celebration of uh, the restoration of Jerusalem um, and our celebration next week. So thank you for that. And if you'd like to uh, be a sponsor of a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, or an historic event like the reunification of Jerusalem, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We always would love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please do share this with others who will find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings to you from right here in the Judean mountains. Thank you and God bless you.